When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European If you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. To make that decision easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just £2 a week, and that will give you unlimited digital access, and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And this week on the New European podcast, could Liz Truss be the worst prime minister ever since the current incumbent worst prime minister ever? Is it really awful to feel nostalgic for the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony? And as the climate crisis and rising fuel prices continue to dominate headlines, is it time to make Europe's biggest cities car-free? I'll be discussing all of that with the new Europeans sooner Erdem. As ever, we'll be throwing malevolent ministers, bonkers backbenchers into our hall of shame. And you, dear new European podcast listener, will be sharing your thoughts on Sunak versus Truss, the contest that Rupert Hook MP has described as being like a battle between typhoid and cholera. But first, not much has happened since we last spoke and I foolishly went on holiday. Well, apart from half the cabinet resigning, Boris Johnson being forced to quit in disgrace, Liz Truss promising to hit the ground from day one, Boris Johnson's supporters trying to reinstate him, long queues at Dover because of Brexit, Truss and Sunak claiming the long queues at Dover were nothing to do with Brexit, and Nadine Dorries and the Daily Mail ranting on about coups against Johnson, led by Sunak and a bunch of TV pundits and bureaucrats deranged by Brexit hatred conspiring for the UK to get back in bed with the European Union. Uh, as the man himself would say, it's all been a bit of a crash rooney snooze fest. But how excited are you by the thought of Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak? We asked listeners to the New European podcast for song titles that would best sum up this clash of the Westlife and the Boyzone of British politics. Clive Weaver says, hopelessly devoted to Brexit. Stuart Hale says, comfortably numb by Pink Floyd. Architect Tagsuba says, slippery people by Talking Heads. Alex Talbot says, the lunatics have taken over the asylum by Funboy 3. Shane Conway says the song that best sums up Sunak versus Truss is Sending the Clowns. Wayne Mills says, it's the end of the world as we know it by R.E.M. Susan Elizabeth says, Idiot Wind by Bob Dylan. Uh, We're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. And Michael Cowell suggests a Bob Dylan song too. Not dark yet. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Justin Peter Butler says, Shut up of your face. And Joe Ellis says the song title and the singer that both sums, best sums up Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss is Bonkers by Dizzy Rascal. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by the New Europeans, Suna Erdem. In issue 
301 of our newspaper, she examines the idea growing around Europe of car-free cities. And on our website this week, she's been talking about the controversy uh, over how the London 2012 opening ceremony is perceived right now. Was it a golden moment when a new Britain became briefly visible or was it all a mirage from the start? Uh, but first, Sooner, I wanted your take on the oddly compelling and quite terrifying Tory leadership campaign. Your thoughts first on the departure of Boris Johnson. How was that marked in the Erdem household and how will you remember him? So when Boris Johnson was obviously leaving, I kept getting texts from my son as if it's like a sort of update from a cup final. He was so excited. <laughs> and um, I also got some from my mother who, um, you know, she's British and she was a young conservative. Um, she was chairman of the young chair of the young conservatives when she was young and she hasn't been voting for um, the conservatives since Brexit. She even voted for Labour under Corbyn. She's so depressed at what's happened to the party. So she was also ecstatic and I was getting all these texts. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a terrible, embarrassing prime minister. I mean, even my Turkish friends who had to put up with Erdogan for all those years, even they were pitying us and saying, what's going on in your country? He's been breaking the law and there's, of course, a lying through Partygate um, and all that was important. And so I can't say I feel anything, you know, any fondness for him. But I mean, the thing that just was most depressing for all of us, really, in the entire household, I suppose, is what, what happened on his watch. It was uh, not just a damaging hard Brexit, but all the increasingly hardline changes like the Nationality and Borders Bill, for, of course, for people with dual nationality or, you know, with a sort of outside view on things that was incredibly depressing you're changing the rules about protesting breaking the law i mean from turkey we we had all this awfulness there but we didn't think it would happen over here the attack on human rights the constant questioning of human rights treaties that's the sort of thing that will stay in our minds um you know not to mention the refugees the sort of ever greater demonization of them you know, even the language, how it evolved, you know, they're all suddenly illegal. They're all economic migrants and nobody's really examined them. They've not proved a thing about it. And um, by the way, most of them were eventually granted asylum, so they weren't yeah. illegal. And uh, if there is even such a thing, because I mean, it's illegal to claim asylum. Anyway, so all these things, it's just it was just a despicable environment. So nobody's very sad about um, him having gone. Um, no, he's very sad about He's very sad about it, but I have to say there's not very much excitement in the Adam household for anyone who's going to replace him, which is, of course, um, it's, it's of course uh, shows how he's changed the whole party and how he's um, rewarded all these people who shouldn't really be in these positions just for loyalty to him and to Brexit. And that's also a big change, which is going to be very difficult to to um, uh, to raise. And I mean, it's it's. I've, I somehow always seem to end up seeing Boris Johnson to a Turkish prism yeah. because he um, famously has a great great grandfather who was a Turkish politician who was um, you know lynched in the streets and hanged from a tree. So I'm not going to comment on any of that any further. Yeah. But it was Turkish journalists in North London um, when he was mayor who first started to tell me how awful they realized he was how he didn't have attention to detail he didn't turn up to meetings he promised things and he didn't mean them and that was when you know, we all thought he was funny mm. so yeah it's been a long journey and I'm glad he's gone but I can't quite believe he has gone and I'm sure he's going to lurk around um a bit like yeah. Trump is doing Yes, he will. And I'm sure there's, you know, there are deluded fantasists who who, uh, who, who think that he'll be back. But I, I, I remember uh, being told that Mrs. Thatcher will be back any minute now in 1990 and 1991. And of course, uh, she stayed, thankfully, well out of the spotlight. I think it's a great point about um, what is coming after him, because, of course, they've doubled down on it, haven't they? It's, it's, uh, it's, it is really remarkable to see uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak saying, well, we want to send more people to Rwanda. Uh, and and, uh, and the, the stuff that is coming out about uh, Liz Truss's proposals uh, for trade union uh, reform uh, and stuff like that. The, the fact that abortion rights no longer mentioned as a human right in Truss's manifesto, uh, all particularly worrying. Um, Rishi Sunak's resignation had played a massive part in, in Johnson going, obviously. And it seems that he's going to get punished for that by the Conservative 
party electorate. Have you been surprised by how poor Sunak has been so far? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, he was he's always put forward as this great, great new thing for quite a long time. I mean, I know people who in the city who rate him very highly, talk about how brilliantly intelligent he is and how he'd be good. Um, and yet you don't really see that in what he writes and what he says. No. Um, so I think, you know, I think the hype is not proving. Well, I suppose he's, um, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't have to persuade people. And he hasn't been in, in Parliament for that long, of course. I mean, he only got in in 2015. Yes. Um, so it's, it's sort of, you know, it's like hyping this little prodigy who then doesn't do enough practice at the end and is a bit of a flop. But obviously he's not, um, he's not stupid and he has the talents to get there. But I mean, what's really surprised me is how he's been branded a socialist, um, <laughs> which is sort of quite hilarious. And when I was writing about, um, for this paper a few years ago, I was writing about Britannia Unchained, that pamphlet by yes. um, a bunch of them, you know, Truss, Patel, Raab, Quateng, um, It's more like, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was, it, please don't anyone read it. I felt quite damaged by it myself. But when I was reading about it, reading it, and there are a lot of things in there that, um, particularly Freeports, which um, Sunak has sort of endorsed, and they're sort of pretty right-wing ideas from the ones that they, um, given the Freeports that they seem to support, you know, tax avoiding, lower wage element. Mm. Um, so, I can't quite believe it, but you know, here he is. He's the wet lefty. That's my surprise. That's the surprise of it, I think. It is quite remarkable, isn't it? And I mean, the, well, I, I was going to say, let's give Rishi Sunak some credit. I mean, let's give him no credit whatsoever because he's been a terrible chancellor. Um, but um, the, the fact that he's the fact that he's persisting in saying we can't cut taxes now. I mean, he, he's not, he's not really, he's not the man for that electorate, is he? Because they, it is that there are 170,000 people who dwell on fantasy Island and think that there is room for tax cuts with everything that's going on at the moment and, uh, and room for a much smaller uh, government. Do you think what, what will happen to Sunak if, and when he loses, do you think he'll just go off back to America and make even more money? Um, well, who knows what's in any of their minds. They all seem to be surprising every moment. But, I mean, he seems pretty thin-skinned so far, mm. so he might well sulk. But he's also shown how ambitious he is. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't like to guess, but I can't personally see him retreating. He's, um, you know, will he refuse if he gets a cabinet post? I mean, how did he get in here? He, applied, he got the, cab, the chancellor job because he accepted a job under conditions that Sajid Javid absolutely refused to so is the ambition going to trumpet i suppose so i mean i'm sure eventually if he's tired of all this he's got some lucrative work elsewhere to do but he seems pretty ambitious and um persistent and seems to accept things that others don't so he might hang around yes i mean if liz truss somehow managed to contrive to lose i can't see her um, making a, a fortune in Silicon Valley, but but maybe I'm maybe I'm being cynical. I mean, people have said that Liz Truss is chaotic. These are people that work with her. People have said that she's chaotic, eccentric, and not somebody for detail, which certainly sounds like a, a breath of fresh air after the last bloke. What yeah, is that's a change? What apart from being loyal to Boris Johnson and therefore you know, being seen as saintly in the eyes of, of these Tory uh, electors. What, what is the case for Liz Truss? Uh, um, well, I'm not sure I can make one, really. I mean, she's a woman, I guess. Yes. But I don't know that we can be so excited about the last woman prime minister, for instance. I mean, no. uh, so I don't know. I mean, I can't think of very much that's positive. I suppose... Some of the things she said, if you can believe them, you know, she's more seems more like to reconsider Channel 4 privatisation, say. And um, she's just talked about restarting Northern Powerhouse Railway Network, which is certainly much more important and useful than the rump of HS2 that's currently tearing up the home counties to no particular advantage to the north. I mean, how can you believe her? I don't know. She's um, she was a Remainer. She's certainly torn that up. She obviously, mm. from what she said, whether that was also part of her shape-shifting, she had um, good arguments about you know, pro-EU arguments, which would suggest that her 
what she's doing now is completely against her original principles. Now, will she shapeshift back? It doesn't look like it. Is this just an act? I don't know. So um, I I couldn't really, <laughs> I couldn't possibly. I mean, she has a, she doesn't you know. just have a magic money tree, does she? She has a, a magic money forest. Um, yes, it is, it is she just quite... says anything that she thinks might happen. I mean, you know, the, the fact that she can, I don't know, think that she can present herself in Russia as this great, um, I mean, her self-belief maybe, but, you know, she can go to yeah. Russia wearing a hat and think that she's going to make a difference. Um, but, you know, she's very good at rewriting stories. Maybe she'll rewrite her own story into becoming a successful prime minister, but I'm not really totally convinced by that. Yes, I mean, it would be good if she re- could rewrite some of Nadine Doris's stories and make them uh, <laughs> uh, too. Is there a, is, do you think there is a racial element to, to, to this? Some people suggested that right at the start, that the Tory members would not be ready to elect a, a, a non-white leader. I mean, I don't think that is... I think it is the... You know, I think that there, there may be an element of that, but the, 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 the Boris Johnson, the coup thing... Um, has probably cemented it. Do you, do you think that there's a, a racial element to it? Do you think Britain would be ready for a non-white leader? Um, I mean, Britain as a whole, I don't think Britain as a whole is half as um, sort of uh, nativist as the sort of representatives show mm. us. So, I mean, I'm sure Britain would be, I mean, there's not been great protest at the ministers and the mayor, but um, in terms of the, you know, it's always under the, radar isn't it there's always the undertone is there a racist element in it because it just keeps coming out in different parts yes. if you look at the membership of the, the we're led to believe certainly that they ought to be it ought to be something that they worry about personally mm. um but then on the other hand you've got diversity it's one of the few positive things that's shown in the election you know all the diverse candidates yeah. i mean not diverse in ideas maybe but you know if, if it's only to show that being a hardline nut job isn't the exclusive preserve of the gammon i think it's it's been a sort of equalizing moment um but would that i don't it's hard to tell i mean because also you've now got as you say rishi sunak sort of traitor not only is he a lefty a socialist he's also he's a, a traitor to the the great god boris so i mean i think i don't think you can entangle that so um disentangle that sorry from some results is britain ready for you know non-white leader of course it ought to be um possibly the conservative too but the conservative membership we'll have to see yeah i mean trust is it does look like trust is, is, is going to win what what's there to fear the most from trust do you think what's the worst of trust oh dear um well i mean all the things you've described i guess the chaos mm. um the unpredictability, the lack of detail, which is, of course, the problems we've had with Boris Johnson. And, um, but I mean, so the facile way she operates, it's not just her, is it? I mean, but the way she can just immediately enter into a bidding war of awfulness about how unreasonably extreme you can be on any issue from sort of Brexit to the Northern Ireland Protocol to her pledge to scrap all EU laws by next year, which... You know, by the way, they laws the UK helped to make and they all gold-plated. I mean, it's just nonsense. So is she going to carry on this nonsense to um, become a sort of worse version of Boris? Mm. That, that's quite scary. I mean, the unpredictability. I can't... Yeah, I, yeah I'm scared by all of it. <laughs> yes, it's quite, it is quite scary. Um, and what about the part that Brexit's playing in this? Because, you know, or the, the non-part, because neither of them can admit in any way that it is going wrong. Whereas, you know, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Andy Street, who's obviously the the West Midlands mayor. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I've heard a couple of interviews with Andy Street ahead of the Commonwealth Games in the last couple of days. He's he's quite willing to admit that Brexit is going wrong in some ways. And and Andy Andy Street, the Brexiteer. So, it's 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 quite concerning isn't it that that they they can't bring themselves to say that even in some small way it is going wrong it's it's extremely concerning i mean in terms of the election obviously they don't seem to think that anyone cares about how it's going wrong they just want more brexit mm. so that will be their pitch as they go in and it is being their pitch and um the fact that 
um, Truss can parlay herself into being the true Brexiteer among the two of them, having voted Remain. That's quite odd, and it doesn't promise much. You know, it doesn't augur well for for her. Um, in terms of the country, of course, it's a it's a terrible concern because if you don't, nothing, even if it's wonderful, nothing has no problems. And Brexit is clearly not wonderful and has a lot of problems. Unless you admit to them, you're not going to solve them. And that's incredibly bad for the country's economy. It's for the, for the future of people. I mean, even everything that comes up that is clearly has something to a certain extent to do with Brexit, they, they just blame on the French and move on. So, you know, we're a third country now. Well, Turkey is a third country. It's not fun going to the EU from Turkey and it's not going to be fun going to the EU from here because of the rules about being a third party, third country. And yet you can still say, well, it's because the French didn't have enough border guards or border border officials in um in dover so if they and the northern ireland how are they going to solve that if they don't admit it it's going to be a lot just more and more arguing and britain sort of receding trade being affected science everything is going to be affected and i don't know whether they're going to have a reality check or not but i guess when eventually you find that it's it's not working well even if they call it something else um it becomes slightly unsustainable which i guess mm. is part of what happened to boris johnson i mean brexit is a kind of a, a handy segue into what i wanted to talk to you about next which is a, a piece that you wrote for our website this week um and i mean you wrote about the 10th anniversary of the opening ceremony of the, the 2012 olympics which sort of old snowflakes like myself seem to believe at the time was you know a triumphant restating a shifting of what it really meant to be british um and a new kind of patriotism and of course four years later it, it turned out that we weren't actually a modern forward-looking uh, welcoming nation at all but a nation that really wanted to put the shutters up and think about how great things were in the past um a lot of people on social media this week have been very angry about a nostalgic affection for the olympic ceremony can can you understand why those people are 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 saying it it wasn't all that it was you know that that people like us thought it was and it was cracked up to be um yes i mean i think um obviously they're angry at the idea that people thought that meant that britain had solved all these problems it was a lovely gentle fun exclusive multicultural modern country and that obviously wasn't the case there's no such utopia Mm. so i can understand why they were angry if that's what people felt, I mean, I'm not sure you know, what's happened since has modified people's views between now, now and then anyway. Yes. But um, yes, I, I can understand it if they, they bring it to mean that, oh, yes, we were so amazing and we didn't have any racism anymore and we everyone was inclusive and we all loved each other. I mean, obviously that wasn't the case. But um, we also have to remember that some of the positivity engendered those who thought it was going to be a monumental cock up. Mm. which we always think that anything organised in Britain is, and the fact that it wasn't was sort of enough to to have a shift in people's attitudes as well. But, um, you know, it's certainly, um, it was certainly a positive event. Um, yes, and it was aspirational in its nature, wasn't it? Rather than saying we are, you know, it, it wasn't somebody marching around saying we are the best and we've solved everything. It was kind of self-deprecating wasn't it there were you know there was talk about the rain and stuff like that and you know it was it was I, I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was it was a, a sort of a, a rallying cry that that cool Britannia was now about to rule the world again was it no I don't think so I mean if you want to look at sort of self-aggrandizing hubristic sort of opening ceremonies you have to look back to Beijing with all those yes. disciplined drummers so I mean there was a lot of self-conscious fun poking um and it was you know the queen <laughs> sort of thinking that she's jumping out of a helicopter in a frilly pink dress you know it's you would i don't think you'd have a lot of you certainly wouldn't have the turkish president doing that so i mean it is something special that we can do this and that's that's something we need to hold on to because so much else is so so bad and I mean, you know, at the time, there were friends of mine who I'm afraid were citizens of nowhere. <laughs> they said it's the first time they felt anything close to pride because they were they just thought it was going to be the usual jingoism. Hmm. You know, um, 
and it, it was it was not like that and i think danny boyle deserves great credit for it and if you read um articles between now and then to report sort of what danny boyle said and everything you had you know at least it wasn't world war ii and hitler because apparently jeremy hunt was saying well where's hitler in this yes <laughs> um, and he wanted the nhs bit taken out didn't he or, or yes yes or, exactly he was the idea was that it was too long but you know and all the volunteers so it said a lot of things so you know it wasn't obviously Britain is settled into this amazingly cool Britannia moment, but it was saying a lot of things that were not really presented in this way before. And, and because it's all about a story and an aspiration, it was showing that this is our aspiration. It might not, we might not have achieved it, but this was our aspiration. And now the aspiration is sort of flag raising thumbs up. I mean, you know, two fingers to the French and all this sort of nationalistic nativistic stuff. So I think, just because that's a story that story they wanted to tell, it shows it was something positive and it shows it difference from now. Well, that obviously doesn't mean that we can gloss over what was happening. I and mean, if you look at what was happening around the Olympics, there were the riots in 2011. Yes. Um, there was austerity, which was starting to hurt sectors like education and children's services. The NHS, obviously, was sort of glorified on the um, in the stadium. But you know, the idea that a nurse has time to read a bedtime story to a child mm-hmm. and have a little dance around with the NHS even then and certainly now it's just ridiculous so in Australia he was crushing lives and that's why it was for that that George Osborne was booed at the Paralympics and um, so it, the, you know the real world was intruding you had um, the hostile envir- environment at that time was becoming a thing yes um, there was racism football at the time it was still you know an ongoing problem as Brexit was around the corner, I mean, they, they'd already invented the word. Um, and a few months later, David Cameron was promising a referendum. And then mm. you had the sort of dreaded Britannia Unchained, I mentioned, published in 2012. So, um, you know, so it was a troubling time underneath. And we'd obviously had the financial crash, which is sort of repercussions are still being felt and everything that's happening now. And those elements there, together with Brexit and the government, have just collaborate it sort of make the country a, a much worse place a country that probably would struggle to put on such a show now um yeah but you know their stories and aspirations they were not oh. it wasn't a smug uh, for me anyway but then i am you know the middle class liberal intelligentsia or snowflake or whatever for me it wasn't everything is great it's like this is a nice thing and look at all these bad things happening elsewhere why did why don't we move in the right direction for once Yes, that's right. What, what, what do you think the Liz Truss Olympic opening ceremony would look like? I like the idea of the, the giant two fingers uh, being uh, installed on the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, that 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 would be that would certainly be something. I don't know who would I don't know who would play at the uh, at the opening ceremony, Liz Truss opening ceremony of the Olympics. Any thoughts? Ah, who would play at it? Um... I, I can't bear to think about any of it, really. I mean, I can see the, the two fingers, you know, and I mean, on current evidence, it would be utterly jingoistic, flag-waving, arrogant, us against them, and would they invite any foreigners, you know? And yeah. I would imagine that she would be the star of it, wearing an extremely weird hat. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, I, I suppose all the all the, the sort of the foreign teams could, could be invited to take take part in, in games in Rwanda where, while we just <laughs> run around our Olympic stadium uh, winning yes. everything. Um, finally, I mean, let's let, let's talk about your big piece for the print edition of the New European this week. It, it's on the idea. It's, it's fascinating that the the, the the idea of car-free cities. Now, clearly, you can't have a city that is entirely car-free. But the idea of you know the idea of of, of cities where cars are banned altogether from some zones or banned altogether from some zones on certain days um, is is a you know, it is a really intriguing one. I mean, the, the factors behind this are kind of obvious, aren't they? But uh, what, what, why are these extreme measures being called for? Um, well, I mean, obviously the heat waves yeah. were a great reminder of why all this matters. Um, so it's sort of climate change, general climate change. You know, car road transport's a huge part of general climate change and um, CO two emissions, and car transport is but most of that is responsible for most of that um so and there's also city level pollution which is having an effect on individuals I and mean, you've got there's just been confirmation about it linked to dementia and in 2012 you had um 
that little girl, nine-year-old Ella Kissy Deborah, they finally confirmed that pollution was um, a cause of her death. Um, we've had a lot of, you know, a lot of cities, particularly London, we've had pollution breaching WHO limits. So we have a real pollution problem in this country, and a lot of, lot of big cities have. And the contribution to global emissions is sort of incalculable. Mm. And um, you have this idea, and you've had since the middle of the 20th century, that car driving is, you know, motorists are have the priority. Car driving is very important. We've got to improve roads. We've got to build cities to allow cars to go through them, to park everywhere. And I recently spoke to an architect who's doing some social housing, and he was not allowed to put cars in a barn a small distance away from the houses he was building because he thought that would make for a better environment. He said, oh, no, they need the car right on the drive. So cars have always been king for so many decades that everyone balks at the idea of, or it doesn't even think that it's possible to remove them slightly from our lives. But if we don't do that, then climate change is going to continue to be an awful problem. It's never going to be solved. And also people are going to die or be more affected by pollution. So it's very, it's, um, it's sort of come together and it has been in some cities for quite a few years. I mean, 70s, 80s, the 90s, some of these, these um, cities have been trying to take cars out. And it's, it's not um, banning cars completely. I mean, if you're a resident, you can generally have a, in a city centre, you will have some kind of access. I mean, you've got um, the Spanish um, city of Pontevedra, where they've been move, removing cars since 1999 um, by a mayor who has been repeatedly re-elected since then. He's still the mayor. And um, they've in, they've bought some made some underground underground car parks in the city center where residents for a small fee can buy a space in a car park um and he said this thing which is i think is a sort of pivotal really he said well just because you buy a car this big piece of metal it doesn't allow you 10 square meters of public space yeah it doesn't mean that you haven't bought that you're not entitled to it you're no more entitled to that piece of public land, the road or pavement or whatever than, than anybody else. And that's something which is quite simple, but I think it's quite um, quite definitive, really, because we do think that, oh, let's put the car there, let's just, you know, the closer we can get to something, the better. So this is a movement which has started slowly, and um, particularly from Paris Agreement, it's sort of expanded. And the idea is to just, you know, why should, sit, why should our roads outside our houses be for a car when our children could be walking, you know, playing there, or we could be walking down, we could be sitting on a bench. So it's also um, a sudden realisation that quality of life is affected very badly by our inability to walk a few metres to get into our cars. Yes. So, I mean, what have, what have been the results in some of the, the, the places that you write about? Pontevedra, you mentioned, Oslo, Stockholm, Ljubljana. What are the, what are the positive results of, of what they have done? So well, in Pontevedra, to go back to that, Pontevedra for the moment, is um, they've got, I think, 300,000 um, square metres of pedestrianised city centre. They've got slow, which pretty much everyone is enjoying. You know, is all these things, you have a bit of a protest at the beginning. What are you doing? What about emergency services? Which, of course, emergency services are allowed. What about our shopping? Will shops get any customers? And then after time, you find that these people suddenly realise they can walk everywhere. You look everywhere you look there, you can just see endless pedestrianised areas. And they're enjoying it. A lot of young children go to school, you know, primary age children go to school mostly on foot, unaccompanied. Um, CO2 emissions, um, they estimate they've reduced by about 70% compared to what, what they were. Um, it's uh, if you go to Ljubljana, um, that's the city centre is also very pedestrianised. They were um, the EU's European Commission's green city of Europe in 2016, but they started on this process 15 years ago. Um, and they have a lot of pedestrian areas. They have a little electric bus that picks up people who are less um, able. I mean, it doesn't mean that you know, some people can still drive and park in the centre, but a very limited number. Mm. But you've got trees, you've got... Um, green lots of green areas you've got benches you can sit on it's sort of redesigned as a social meeting place um then you've got um so you've got barcelona for instance where they've um chosen to um 
move cars around a system what they call super blocks so you have blocks of nine apartment blocks so sort of form of the square with sort of uh, sort of um some streets in between crossing yeah. over and the streets in between have very limited access and so instead again you have a social hub people go and sit outside they talk to each other and um it's they plant things so of course you know having um trees and plants in a city can drastically reduce pollution as well so it's not just the cars being removed what replaces it um in oslo you have a lot of the driving's been pushed underground and again they have you know some of the outdoor spaces um in the center as like living rooms and people are really enjoying the the quality of life that it brings and um a lot of the criticisms that are made of them or worries or tend to turn out to be untrue so you have shopkeepers are worried that if they don't have through traffic they won't get customers and when you open the city up to pedestrians and shut it off to outside traffic they realize that actually the best customers are locals so a lot of there are people who are upset by certain of them but mostly they're very very pleased and you've got not more than 95 percent approval in Ljubljana of their pedestrianized city and they want they usually want more they cycle more they um walk more um it's it tends to be much more pleasant more livable you know the kind of place that we'd all like to live why would we want cars on our doorstep yes uh, i mean the, the protests are, are here aren't they i mean we, we, we've seen them in in manchester against what andy burnham is is proposing london paris both made attempts to reduce the flow of cars in the centres. Um, and there's, there's been a political cost of that for, for uh, Sadiq Khan and for, for um, uh, Hidalgo. Is this going to be a key electoral issue in the future, do you think? Not, not car-free cities, um, that's just a part of it, but the battle between those who are in favour of green uh, levies and net zero and people who say, we can't afford uh, to match up to these net zero targets we can't afford green levies at a time like this let's come back to it in the future in a future when it's too late i mean yeah. the the it is certainly being shaped as an issue by a certain group of people i mean you would say you know certainly the conservative candidates now and they are um you know they're feeding off um activism um which is usually a minor voice i mean just like you know, with climate change itself or with Brexit, there's a sort of vocal minority which seem to run the show and they're punching above their weight because they're loud. There's some um, people who live in LTNs in London who tell, tell me about these sort of hyperactive leafleting by a very yeah. small group of people, generally backed by these sort of associated British drivers, um, sending them leaflets saying all the terrible things that are going to happen because of um, the, you know, L, the low traffic neighbourhood programme. And um, what seems to ha- what tends to happen then is, you know, well, the, the right seem to quite like all this and the left, they're worried that this is a major electoral problem. And so they're a bit timid about it. And yet when you see what happens in elections, I mean, if you look abroad, so Pontevedra mayor being elected six times in um, Paris, you've got Anne Hidalgo, who she didn't make she didn't make an impact in the presidential election, but she was, you know, she's a, a very active mayor of paris and she's working very hard to um pedestrianize areas and she has made quite a lot of headway although there's lots of battles she's still fighting and um in london they had uh, an analysis of local elections they found that contrary to what people believed is that these you know, the um the anti-green levy the anti sort of um car car reduction program people were the, were the majority they found that when this has been an issue in a local election it's been invariably the person who is for um greener more car-free city that has been the one that's won i mean if you go in kensington there was a they temporarily put in a cycle lane in kensington high street and then it was very quickly dismantled after protests and that was where the conservatives collapsed i mean may or may not have been linked but it doesn't seem to be a vote loser it's just there's just the assumption of it mm. um so and and interestingly when you talk to politicians who have pushed through these programs in other cities you know the mayor of ljubljana of oslo of pontevedra um they 
they say that there, of course, there was a backlash at the beginning, but they, they did two things. One of them was they didn't, they didn't stop. It, they might have slowed down, but they, they didn't change their minds. They didn't say we couldn't afford it. Oh, dear, all the people against us. But they did have a big information campaign and they had a dialogue with the people and they explained to them. They said, this is going to be, you know, it is to get rid of cars, but this is this doesn't be something bad for you. This is what it's going to look like. It's going to be good quality of life. And then they carried on. And I think what happens a lot is when you accept that it's an electoral issue, when the numbers show it probably isn't, mm. and you pull back, then you don't get the chance to show people and you don't, and then it's just too late. Um, so I think they need to have a, it, they shouldn't let it be an electoral issue unless it's a positive one and they shouldn't let it stop them because it's, you know, history is on their side. I mean, one thing again, that the Ponte Vedra there, who's very, very um, colorful character, um, and actually a medical doctor said, you know, we can't, you know, mess about doing little things incrementally. It's, it's happening. We can't wait for the future. The future is now. We've got to do these things now. And if you just turn it into something that you're going to win votes with, that's, that's, that, I don't think it's helpful to you as a politician, and it's terrible for the country. Again, one last thing I'd say was um, I was obviously listening to the um, Alistair Campbell Rory, Rory Stewart's podcast, and um, Rory Stewart was talking about how he, a taxi driver told him that he would win the mayor, he would become mayor of London if he promised to cut all the traffic calming measures, all the sort of low emission stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a myth that has too much power and nobody really tries to give a positive vision of what something might look like to show how it's better. And obviously to do that, they have to improve public transport, which is a big issue um, in yeah. some countries. Yes. Although less in London, I have to say. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, before before I, I, I let you go, uh, and it's been a fascinating chat, um, the the let's just circle back on on this to the the tory leadership election because you know neither i mean sunak barely mentioned net zero in the 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 debate that i saw trust mentioned it only to say that she wanted a a moratorium on net zero targets and and sort of green levies uh until uh, a time when everything was rosy again um what what's the future for for sort of green politics, environmental politics, politics um, against uh, the climate crisis uh, with either of those two in charge? Well, it's not very promising, um, (laughs) is it now? Um, uh, And you don't know, you know, you just think, what is it going to take? So the heat waves where parts of Britain, not, you know, these faraway countries where they're hot anyway, parts of Britain were burning. You know, it's, it depends on whether they've got an ounce of, understanding of reality in them i mean you could see that they it would play well with their electorate um to say well we're gonna cut the green levies um you know the green crap as the they said yeah. under cameron and it, it probably will play well for for certain number of them but you know how long before everyone's so discomforted by it before that they have to do something whether that's early enough i don't know but you have, my hope possibly is that this government might not be that long-lived <laughs> yeah maybe that's the hope that is the hope for the future but they do have binding you know the country does have binding net zero targets so well, we made them didn't we yeah exactly so <laughs> we... uh, how far are they going to go are they actually going to overturn them well i mean thankfully there's no precedence for us um uh signing an agreement and then wanting to go back on it straight away oh hang on no, absolutely that's why everyone looks up at us <laughs> there is there is that thank you so much to sooner erdem to read Sooner on Car Free Cities 2012 opening ceremony and a whole lot more. You can get full access to her archive by subscribing at the new european.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Now, before we go to the Hall of Shame, a reminder of another brilliant podcast from the new European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. 
They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of the 27 uh, is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. And also a quick reminder that Series 1 and Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts are available now. Just search for Great European Lives podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, all of them. Uh, And Pretty Patel is in the Hall of Shame this week and at a time when nothing really important is happening at home. The Home Secretary was photographed uh, laughing and drinking champagne at Goodwood. Uh, I've got some of her bets at Goodwood here. In the first, she went for Rwanda woman, four to one. Uh, that one trailed in last. Next race, uh, Pretty Patel plumped for Bully for Me at two to one. Sadly, a non-starter there. And then elsewhere, I've got uh, the card here. Uh, she bet on gesture politics, giant channel wave machine. Uh, that was in the fourth race. Uh, Smirking Merkin in the fifth race. Uh, border farce in the sixth, uh, all losers. And then on the last race, she lumped it all on Pretty's leadership bid, uh, which pulled up lame and then was shot in the paddock. Bad luck there for Pretty Patel. How much did she lose uh, on those bets? Apparently it was £300,034,974. Uh, and Widdicombe is always in the Hall of Shame, and she writes this week in the Dismal Daily Express, The brutal fact is that Rishi, although bright and competent, is a cautious creature, whereas Liz Trust can be relied upon to go the other way, which is exactly what we need in this post-Brexit, post-pandemic world. Yeah, I mean, who needs bright, competent, cautious people when you can have Liz Truss? And the Daily Telegraph is in the Hall of Shame, uh, front page piece suggesting that Boris Johnson should become the next Secretary General of NATO. Uh, What a splendid idea if Boris Johnson's ever stuck for what to do as Secretary General of NATO. He can just call up his old muckers, the Lebedevs, who will be sure to offer him impartial advice, uh, just as long as he can actually remember what it was that they uh, actually said. Nadine Doris is in the Hall of Shame. I think she thinks that NATO is Inspector Clouseau's manservant. Uh, Nadine Doris says that the Commonwealth Games has put Birmingham on the map. Do you know, I've just looked at the map just before we started this podcast and Birmingham is on it. So, you know, she's right. Some people think she's daft, eh? Alicia Kearns MP is in the Hall of Shame. Uh, I love this. Asked if she regretted supporting Petty Mordant in the Tory leadership race. She said, not at all. We're all really proud of Penny and we would do it again in a heart second. Which brings us on to the person who is foremost or foreleast in the Hall of Shame this week. And it is, of course, Liz Truss, the woman who promised to hit the ground on day one. The woman who says freedom is a price worth paying. The woman who says she grew up in a red wall seat when it was actually a Tory seat from 1955 to 1997. The woman who says she wants to cut murders by 20%, therefore implying that 80% of murders are okay by her. The woman who thinks that PM stands for pork markets. The woman who is coming soon as the next Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Be afraid. Be very afraid. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to Suna Erdem. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Matt Withers this week 
and Eleanor Ongwin Rood most other weeks. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of a pound a week for digital, two pound a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe, give us nice ratings, lovely reviews on social media. Please join the New Europeans Facebook readers group and follow us on Twitter at the New European. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. That's S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.